MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, October 1st, 2020. Today, emergency changes on the presidential debate format are announced following the Trump shit show Tuesday night. James Comey testified before the Senate Judiciary this morning where Lindsey Graham dropped Russian disinformation laundered through the DNI Ratcliffe. Judge Reggie Walton has ruled on the appropriateness of Barr's redactions of the Mueller report in the FOIA lawsuit brought by BuzzFeed and Epic. And Trump is worried that Brad Parscale is going to start talking. I'm your host, A.G. Hello, everyone. A big show today. I will be speaking with Hanna Baramovich about her new book for young readers about the Second Amendment. And I'll be speaking with Devin Q, Democratic candidate for the Washington State Legislature in the 14th District. Of course, we will have the good news at the end, along with some confessions in there. And if you have any good news to submit, by the way, if it's personal good news or political good news, we want to hear it, or any confessions or corrections, just head to dailybeanspod.com and click contact. And we have another way to get premium subscriptions to the show. And this allows you to get ad-free episodes. You get the episodes the night before. Plus, you get access to our book club episodes. And right now, Dana Goldberg and I are reviewing Mary Trump's book, um, Too, uh, Too Much and Never Enough. And soon, I will be going over Mueller prosecutor Andrew Weissman's book, Where Law Ends, inside the Mueller investigation. And you can do that by heading to dailybeans.supercast.tech. Or you can go to our Patreon account and sign up there. So thanks to all of our patrons also who have donated hundreds and hundreds of one-year subscriptions for those who can't swing it and our frontline workers and veterans and our heroes. Thank you so much for your donations of those one-year subscriptions. If you want to buy a one-year subscription for someone who can't do it right now, just head to dailybeanspod.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the main page and you'll see there where you can buy a one-year subscription for someone for just $36. So we have a lot of headlines to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. There's a new piece in Vanity Fair today by Gabriel Sherman, and here's the lead. Over three days, the New York Times dropped a tax bombshell, Florida cops cuffed Brad Parscale, and the president just couldn't help himself on stage. Now, as we know, uh, the first shit show debate uh, was awful. Trump not only refused to condemn white supremacists, but he actually told the Proud Boys to stand down and stand by. Uh, And according to this reporting in Vanity Fair, a campaign advisor told Gabriel he blew this for sure. Another one said it's nuts, total lunacy. And uh, another Trump campaign aide said Trump didn't win over any voters, but he pissed off a lot of people. And I think it's really, really telling that the entire news cycle today is completely wall to wall about this comment. And that is bad news for the Trump campaign. The Trump campaign wanted us to be talking about other things. Other things, very important things. Uh, But what everyone is focused on is this comment in support of white supremacy. And he, again, didn't denounce it today. Well, he didn't say, he said, I denounce it, I denounce it. He didn't say I would denounce white supremacy or the Proud Boys. He also claims he doesn't know who the Proud Boys are, uh, which is bullshit. Um, Just like he said he didn't know who David Duke was when David Duke endorsed him. Uh, These are no more, no longer dog whistles. These are just bullhorns. And, you know, we all think back and remember Charlottesville and what he said about good people being on both sides uh, when that is obviously not the case. And and so now this is dominating the news cycle. And again, bad news for Trump. So that's sort of the first focus of this article in Vanity Fair. Uh, And by the end of the story, uh, Gabriel says that the tax news uh, was also the day before eating up the news cycle, right, the, to the, in the days prior. And while that was happening, while it was eating up the mainstream media, Brad Parscale was tackled and taken into custody for brandishing a gun, threatening suicide, and allegedly beating his wife a few days earlier. Parscale is under investigation for stealing from the Trump campaign and the RNC and probably other things that we don't know about that might be in that redacted Appendix D of the Mueller report. And according to a source close to the Trump campaign, The entire Trump family is worried that Parscale could flip and cooperate with law enforcement and tell them all about campaign finance violations. And, of course, we also had the Channel 4 reporting coming out of the U.K. 
about the micro-targeting, particularly of 3.5 million black voters, and that was headed up by Brad Parscale as well. Uh, And speaking of the debate, the debate commission is making changes to the rules to deal with Trump's assholery, including a rule that will allow the moderator to mute his mic if he refuses to shut the fuck up. So this should be interesting. Trump can be put on a timeout by the moderator. I believe the next debate is a town hall format. um, So that might not quite be, you know, come into play, but it could. He could just when if Biden is responding to an audience member, Trump could probably interrupt and throw, you know, walk it just, you know, be a total asshole, bully, petulant child that he is. Uh, That was just such an embarrassment. Uh, It was hard to watch. It was very triggering, um, especially if you've ever been in an abusive relationship. And it, it was just madness. It was an absolute shit show, um, that debate. So we'll see what happens in these next two debates. And the debate commission is working on more rules. And I'll have more complete uh, listings of those rules for you when I get them. The only one I know about so far is the ability to mute the mic. ABC has confirmed that. It is just now breaking. All right. So now, do y'all remember Judge Reggie Walton? This was the judge that was listening to the FOIA lawsuit brought by Epic and BuzzFeed, uh, say, uh, wanting to get an uh, unredacted copy of the Mueller report. And Reggie Walton was looking through these redactions, and part of the suit was, were these redactions appropriate for the right reasons under FOIA law? These exemptions, right? Like, Because if you FOIA something, they'll send you redacted shit. And the redactions fall under different sections and codes of exemptions from the FOIA rule and uh, Rule 6E. And so the timeline here is that on March 5th of 2020, and we've, we've been following this on Mueller, She Wrote, and the Daily Beans since, since it's been happening. But on March 5th, uh, Reggie Walton asked for an unredacted copy of the Mueller report because Judge Reggie Walton wanted to review the redactions in camera, which means in private, in his chambers, right, in camera, in the house. And that means he wanted to look at the unredacted and the redacted. He wanted to see what was behind the redacted parts and determine if they were appropriately redacted. And on March 30th, because uh, that was March 5th, he asked for the unredacted. March 30th, he got the unredacted report from the Department of Justice. They handed it over. Walton's been reviewing it, and he's determined that some of the redactions were appropriate. Those under that fall under exemptions 3, 7A, 7C, and 7E. Those are cool. Uh, but the ones under Exemption 5, which are interagency and client privilege for FOIA, were uncool. They were inappropriate. Now, there is a status conference that is scheduled uh, in this to, to to discuss how things are going. That That status conference is scheduled for October 22nd. And the Department of Justice has until the day before the election to release the inappropriately redacted bits, November 2nd, 2020. And we uh, sort of came out with a list because BuzzFeed, they got their, their unredacted bits. We went through a lot of them. Uh, but apparently uh, this is the order that was put in today. So basically the judge granted and part part of the FOIA and denied part of the summary judgment or at, in, in his summary judgment, granted part and denied part for each side. Like you can have the five, the exemption five stuff, but you can't have the rest, the three, seven, A, seven, C and seven E. So we should be getting those unredacted bits on the day before the election, unless, of course, we already have them. Uh, And I'm also a little confused about if something was redacted for multiple exemptions, including five, if those will be handed over or if they're appropriate because they were also redacted for like 7C, 7B, 7E or whatever. So I I don't quite know. I'm going to see if I can reach out to Jason Leopold or... Epic and find out if they have the answers to that, or if we've already received these redactions because uh, these unredacted bits. Because you, you know, if you listen to the podcast, we went over several that were received by BuzzFeed um, and Epic. They had a whole table of them. Now, uh, let's see. Speaking of the Mueller report, Comey testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee this morning. Why? I know, right? Why Comey? Well, this is part of Leningrad Lindsay's push to discredit the Russia investigation ahead of the election and to try to tie Biden to some of this shit. We already know in the Flynn case that um, some of the documents given to Sidney Powell, Flynn's lawyer, 
by uh, Jeffrey Jensen, who is the U.S. attorney in the Eastern District of Missouri, I believe. He's the one that Barr said, you go check out Flynn. Durham, you go check out the oranges of the investigation. And I think he put some guy from Cleveland on the Stone case. Got somebody on all of his president's friends' cases. Uh, And apparently, Jeff Jensen gave all these documents from the DOJ over to Sidney Powell, and they had been altered. Dates had been added, and date ranges had been added. And one date range was put, like, instead of a date of a contemporaneous note by Peter Strzok, a date range was added so that it could include that, you know, that Biden had known about it. They're trying to discredit Biden ahead of the 2020 election with with this shit, while simultaneously trying to get Flynn uh, off the hook. And of course, Gleason was like, look, if you want to let Flynn off the hook, you have the pardon power. Use it. Do not abuse the courts to do this. This is not a rubber stamp fuck off. It was a beautiful hearing. We went over it yesterday. Um, But anyway, having Comey testify today, part of Lindsey Graham's push to discredit the election. And now they're dragging Joe Biden into it, right? It used to be in these hearings. Well, in that meeting that you had with Susan Rice and Obama uh, and Loretta Lynch uh, and Sally Yates, didn't you blah, 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 blah. And now it's in that meeting you had with Biden and Obama and da, 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 you know, and so now they're just trying to drag Biden into it. This is all part of discrediting 2016 to try to help lift the sanctions off of Russia for interfering, uh, attacking us in the 2016 election and to discredit Biden at the same time. Now, the Republicans harped for the entire session on the Carter Page FISA, because that is all they have, right? This inappropriate FISA. But Comey got some barbs in there, including when asked by Senator Lee how he can possibly speculate about Russian leverage over Trump. And Comey responded, because I have eyes and ears. (laughs) That was great. And he's like, yeah, how can you, how can you speculate about Russian leverage over Trump when Clinton was working with Russia? And this Clinton with working was working with Russia thing is absolute bullshit because this is the most shocking thing yet not shocking at all because Lindsey Graham dropped the Russian disinformation letter laundered through the director of national intelligence Ratcliffe former Intel House Intel committee member totally unqualified doesn't have a fucking lick of intelligence experience and lied on his resume about it during his first confirmation hearing which is why he wasn't confirmed the first time but he was confirmed the second time okay Anyway, laundered this information through Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe sent a letter um, saying the Russian intelligence, uh, some you know, Russian intelligence said that Clinton was conspiring with the Russians to pin Trump to this, you know, tie Trump to the, the hack of the DNC and the DCCC. And he dropped that into the record in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Disinformation. When asked about the letter, Comey said, I don't understand Ratcliffe's letter. It's confusing. It's poorly written. Uh, I believe it's based on unverified intelligence, so I can't answer your question. And in fact, Comey's right. The Russian intelligence assessment we learned from Politico yesterday, uh, this information that Hillary was trying to pin it, you know, pin Russia on Trump, uh, that had been previously rejected by Democrats and Republicans on the Senate Intelligence Committee as having no factual basis. <laughs> So, nice try, Lindsey Graham. Also, you're a fucking treasonous piece of shit. The entire hearing was ridiculous, but I hope it encourages people to watch the Comey Rule on Showtime, which now has the record for the top multi-platform debut for a Showtime limited drama series. I'd like to thank you all for that. I think that um, the interest garnered in the Mueller investigation and Comey uh, comes a lot from you, from you all. So, thank you. And uh, finally here, the Kentucky Attorney General has filed a motion to delay the release of the grand jury transcripts in the Breonna Taylor case. Let me repeat that. The Kentucky Attorney General, who had agreed to a judge's order to release these transcripts, now has filed a motion to delay the release of the grand jury transcripts. All of the beans, he got a call from Trump yesterday after he agreed to release the testimony. 100%. No doubt in my mind. Or bar on behalf of Trump. You know how Trump doesn't give specific directions. You just know what you're supposed to do. Uh, anyway, we will be right back with the Flip It Blue segment. We're going to talk to uh, Devin Q. You don't want to miss it. It's awesome. So stick around. 
After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's AG. Today's episode of Daily Beans is brought to you by Fight Camp. I try to exercise and stay in shape, but I get really bored sometimes with the same old workouts. So I'm always looking for new routines to keep me engaged and motivated. And if you're like me, and you're looking for an exciting workout that is a huge stress reliever and is fun and challenging but never boring, you have to check out Fight Camp. Fight Camp is an at-home boxing and bodyweight workout. It's taught by real fighters, and it's made for all levels, from first-time boxers to seasoned fighters. It is even great for kids. I just did a workout with my goddaughter. It was awesome. The boxing workout is always ranked as one of the best ways to get in shape, and it's honestly one of the most fun ways to get a full-body workout and combine cardio and strength training while also developing hand-eye coordination. Fight Camp provides all the gear you need, including gloves and wraps and the best freestanding punching bag on the market, and their unique punch tracking sensors that allow you to show real-time progress and stats on any iOS device. The workouts are structured like traditional boxing rounds with interval training, so it's high-impact interval training. And, and that is three minutes of high-intensity boxing and body weight training and then one minute of rest. And you can access over 400 different workouts, and they have four new workouts every week. And then you can connect with Fight Camp users on Facebook, too. There's over 4,000 members there, and they have challenges, and you can share your success stories and hardships and challenges and things like that and get support from the community. And you can access a leaderboard, too, for some competition. You can watch yourself reach new milestones and bring that goal-crushing mentality to every part of your life. Fight Camp keeps you engaged, focused, and in the zone. Endless variety, uplifting beats, motivating trainers, and powerful technology all combined to create a uniquely satisfying workout. And they offer flexible financing for as low as 0% APR. And for a limited time, you can try Fight Camp for 30 days with their money-back guarantee. Just go to joinfightcamp.com beans. That's right. Try Fight Camp for 30 days, and if you don't love it, they will refund you. Train like a fighter and turn your sweat into results. To try Fight Camp for 30 days, go to joinfightcamp.com beans. That's joinfightcamp.com beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. I'm blue. Today, for the Flip It Blue segment, we're talking to Washington State Legislative District 14 candidate, Democratic candidate, in uh, running against Gina Mossbrucker. And his name is Devin Q. And he is a high school teacher and received enough write-in votes to be on the November ballot. Devin, welcome. Hi, AG. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here. That's amazing. You got enough write-in votes to be on this ballot to challenge this Republican. Yeah, it's it definitely been a little bit of a whirlwind. Um I like you said, I'm a high school teacher. I did not have huge political aspirations, but I opened up my ballot in July and saw that both our state Senate seat and the state representative seat were being run unopposed by Republicans who have really left our hardworking families behind. And so I knew I needed to step up and launched a 14 day blitz campaign to get enough writing votes to make it to November. And we did so. Excited to be here. That's amazing. Good hard work on the ground. And uh, it paid off. And here's why. Because this is a very, very important uh, legislative district in Washington. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the the demographics, characteristics of the 14th? Yeah, for sure. It's a really incredible district. It's pretty large geographically. It spans all the way from the Columbia River in south central Washington with our border with Oregon up into the Yakima Valley. Um, We have the Cascades, Pato, or Mount Adams here. Uh, It's a very, we have a huge agriculture, right, which is the, plays a crucial role in our state's food systems. Um, We have a lot of power generation down near the Columbia River. Um, And it's just full of a lot of really hardworking rural families who um, care about being able to have that stability for their community and um, live in a happy, happy, healthy life. That's so amazing. And I've talked to so many Democrats trying to flip rural counties and districts and precincts and wards because of the lack of, for example, Internet service to rural communities, the lack of hospitals, the food deserts. And then, of course, in a lot of these rural communities, like you mentioned, agriculture, we have all these tariff problems. But more specifically, uh, you know, we have to con- we have to consider our, the environment, because like you said, the Columbia River, the Cascades, it's just a, a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. And it's being left behind, as is health care and education, access to the Internet. It's being left behind by Republicans who have different mm, special interests in mind, shall we say. So I, can you talk a little bit 
uh, about your, first of all, let's talk about health care. It's, it's real hard uh, for a lot of rural folks and families to get the health care they need, not just because of access and plans being so expensive, but just because of brick and mortar health care buildings and hospitals are, are few and far between. So can you talk a little bit about what you would do for the constituents in District 14 for health care? Healthcare is so vital, like you say, and definitely here in this district, it is. That's it's not just affordability, but also access. One of the big steps I've taken is I've endorsed the plan Whole Washington, uh, which is working to become an initiative um, through our initiative process here in Washington. But hopefully, we can get the uh, legislators into office who will introduce it as a bill uh, as well. And that's looking at creating universal single payer healthcare here in the state of Washington, so we can really be a leader in this field. And that's so crucial because it's going to give the state the ability to invest in infrastructure, to negotiate prices, and create that access in these rural communities. Up in Yakima, in the northern part of the district, we had a hospital closed down in February, right? People lose jobs, people lose access. Uh, here, if you have any down in the southern part of the district where I live, um, our hospital doesn't have ICU beds. So if you need more advanced care, you're having to get transported away from your home. And so really looking at how we can reimagine how healthcare is being provided and supported in the state of Washington to make sure it's a right for all of our citizens is crucial. Uh, and being able to get that those finances to invest in rural access, rural hospitals, because uh, right now that burden is being put on the counties to try to raise taxes and pay to keep these hospitals open. Uh, and one of the big burdens on the hospitals is when people come in with advanced needs, um, because they haven't gotten preventative care, but can't afford that care. And so the county is needing to cover that cost at, in our local hospitals. But if everyone has preventative care, if they have access to health care, it's going to bring our costs way down and really support that rural infrastructure. Yeah, and we can keep that money in the pockets of the families in the exactly. district. And that's very, very important. And this health care situation ties directly into What's going on right now with schools because of the COVID pandemic, the Republicans uh, in Washington fighting to cancel uh, health insurance for millions, people because of this crashed economy, uh, millions out of work, uh, and, and a lot of people's health care is tied to their work. But, you know, more specifically, concerns about pre-existing conditions because of COVID and now the push to reopen schools. And I want you to talk a little bit about your plan on education and where you stand on, on sending our children who the CDC have lied about being vectors and susceptible to this disease, where you stand on, on that. Yeah. It, as a teacher, I couldn't say how badly I want to be in my classroom. I, I'm on Zoom every day with my students and hearing them be ache for the flow of normal life and be back with their peers. Uh, and me being back in those classrooms is so important to me. But at the center of that, we also need to make sure we're prioritizing all of our students' health and safety. And my plan with getting us back into schools in the best way is really making sure we're addressing equity in that return. We need to look at the numerous ways our schools serve our communities through a safe place for students to be during the day, through school lunches, through uh, additional supports for students with special needs, through students who are English language learners, and bringing them back to school first, right? We can start having smaller numbers of students in our schools. And so really thinking about, are we providing the PPE? Are we providing the resources to our schools to do this safely? and starting to do it in a way that addresses equity um, as we phase back in. That has to be our huge priority. And that is our short-term schools, right? That's our big push right now, but we need to continue looking at how we're reinvesting in our education system to address those opportunity gaps on the big levels, right? The amount of funding your school gets should not be tied to the test scores or the property taxes in your community. We need to make sure that we're fully funding schools and doing so in an equitable fashion to address opportunity gaps. So we're supporting all members of our community to have the best shot at getting a good education and finding economic opportunity as they grow older. Yeah, I never understand why we take property taxes and only invest them in those local school districts, why it's not put in a state pool and then distributed equally amongst the districts. I, it doesn't it just makes no sense to me. Like, be, be like the NFL, right? Let's, right. let's be a little, bit, let's be a little bit equitable about this. Let's not be the New York fucking Yankees up in here, okay? <laughs> yeah. Let's right. be the Green Bay Packers, and let's let's all get the equal amount of money that we need. Now, 
I want to talk a little bit about your plan for economic opportunity, mainly through sustainable and durable industries and how that links up with environmental protections and green jobs. Can you talk a little bit about those two, those two uh, platform issues that for you? Definitely. I think right now, as we come out of COVID, is going to be a crucial time. We're going to see governments at all levels looking at how they can jumpstart our economies, how to get things flowing again and people employed and able to put food on their families' tables. And with that government investment, I think it's more important than ever that we're flipping seats up and down ballots to ensure we have the voices who are going to make sure that that investment is going towards renewable energy towards more wind, more solar power, and looking at storage. Storage is such a crucial thing. Here in the Columbia River Gorge, each spring, the Columbia River is going at full capacity. The dams are outputting huge amounts of power, and they turn off all the windmills because there's too much power for our region to use. And so looking at ways that we can store that power is going to be vital, right? There's a proposal for uh, pump storage in Goldendale in my district, um, there's some issues around where that land is, and make, I think that's a really important conversation and connecting with the Yakima Nation, who's here in my district, to make sure we're honoring their tribal history and sovereignty. Um, but thinking about projects like that, how are we storing power? How are we producing more green power and moving us away from this dependence on fossil fuel? We've had two weeks earlier this summer that you couldn't see the sun. I couldn't see across the Columbia River because of smoke from forest fires. The evidence is all around us. And um, for a district that is the backbone of our economy has been our environment through agriculture and timber and all these other things, we need to protect it, not just for the natural beauty for our recreation, but also for our economic stability. We need to be looking to the future with all of those decisions we're making. Yeah, I, I and I couldn't agree more. It, it it all sort of boils down to vo- voting blue up and down the ballot, even in these in these local races. Because even at the foundation, you said when we come out of COVID, in order to come out of COVID, we have to vote blue right. up and down the ballot uh, <laughs> in order to get out of this in the first place. So we have put people in office, whether it's at the state legislature level or at the Senate level or at in the White House. We we. This current administration and everybody down ballot in the red there just does not seem to support having any kind of a plan to get us through this pandemic. Now, finally, before I let you go, I want to talk about, um, again, some of the characteristics of your rural district there. And I want to talk about a couple of important things that mean I know mean a lot to your constituents. And that's Internet access, which kind of ties in with education there. And then, of course, the agriculture issues that you're facing. Totally. Uh, I think a big one with the access to internet is we see uh, in rural communities, large corporations, we're not the money makers for them. So there's not a lot of incentive for them to put in different things to bring higher quality broadband into our community. And as we're seeing through COVID, it is a vital way for people to access employment, for people to access education. And so making sure that we're supporting it. There have been some different cities throughout the country who have made uh, broadband internet access a public utility. And those communities have seen lower costs, higher speed, and higher customer satisfaction with the customer service even, right? And so I think that is an important step for us to be looking at how are we ensuring that this access is available to everyone in our community so people can get the economic opportunity, they can access education and be supported in so many ways. Uh, as, as far as agriculture, it, it's the backbone, right? We support so much of the state of Washington. And so really making sure that those are growers here in the state of Washington have the support they need in terms of PPE, in terms of affordable housing for their employees, in terms of health care for their employees to make sure that they can continue functioning at the levels they need during COVID and beyond, right? When we support those workers, when we support our agriculture, everyone's going to flourish. Yeah, and 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 I know small farms haven't received a penny of the twenty eight billion they were promised. Totally. Uh, and so, and, and then of course, you know, the Republicans are all in support of tariffs, which we pay for. I know that the Republicans want you to think China pays those or Mexico <laughs> pays for the wall. Not the case, and it's making it really, really hard on uh, uh, on our local farmers. Our the big yep. farms, you know, big ag has gotten all their money. 
but uh, they have the money to lobby Washington to make sure that that happens. So I'm glad that there'll be a constituent here in the state legislature will see to it. So I appreciate that. Um, before I let you go, uh, I want our listeners to be able to help you win this race. Uh, it's been held by a Republican for so long, and it was running unopposed. You got in on right in on right in votes, and I know that you need some assistance. So, where can our listeners either contribute to your campaign or volunteer to send some postcards, make some calls, send some texts? Where can they get all that information and more information on your platform? Totally. Yeah, the best place for that is my website. It's electq.com. It's spelled E-L-E-C-T-K-U-H.com. You can sign up to volunteer there. We have text banking, phone banking, and people try stuff and send letters. We're trying to send over 20,000 letters right now to different constituents throughout the district. Uh, And each of those costs us about 75 cents. So any of those that people can either stuff or sponsor if you don't have the time to address letters, um, that's a great way. The link to my ActBlue to donate is on the website as well, um, as well as my email and phone number. So please find those, reach out. I'm always happy to connect with people and share more about what I am, what I care about and why I'm here. Uh, and so, yeah, thank you all so much. I really appreciate the time and the support you can, you can lend our way to help us flip this seat and get someone who's really going to fight for the hardworking rural families in this district. Mm, yeah, and added benefit, if you contribute money to help send those letters, you're also supporting the United States Postal Service, which, as we know, exactly. is under attack and really negatively impacts rural communities. Uh, they really depend uh, on the Postal Service to get to get what they need in the mail, especially veterans who need medications. Uh, and it, I mean, it's it's so, so important. So thank you very much, Devin Q. Uh, I really appreciate um all of of the things that you're doing and it it's just it's such a worthwhile seat to support so i appreciate the time uh and thank you uh, one last question what what subject do you teach there in high school i teach high school math i have uh, algebra two and pre-calculus right now no wonder the republicans don't like you um <laughs> <laughs> they're very afraid of math and numbers probably because they're arabic but i don't you know i don't know. uh anyway thank you so much and thanks for what you do as a teacher thanks for you know i mean it's just any way that um, our listeners can help I'm, i i hope that they do so i appreciate you coming in today devin q appreciate it thank you so much ag have a good day all right everybody stick around we'll be right back with the interview stay with us Hey everybody, it's AG, and this portion of the podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Everyone needs help from time to time when life gets stressful. So if you're struggling with anything that's preventing you from living your best life, then I highly recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in less than 24 hours. I faced my own challenges, as you know, dealing with PTSD, and I know it's important to seek help rather than try to face it alone. BetterHelp services are available for clients worldwide, and they have a broad range of expertise in their counselor network, Uh, you know, counselors that might not be available in your local area. The best thing about BetterHelp is you can log onto your account anytime and send a message to your counselor, and you get timely, thoughtful responses, and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if you need. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid's available. Check out their website and read some testimonials, like user WE, who says, Working with Kristen has been a wonderful experience. The combination of email and video sessions is so helpful and accessible. Kristen gives me thorough exercises, which can keep me focused on my progress. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Daily Beans listeners. Get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Joining us today for the interview, she has an English degree from Harvard and a JD from Yale. She has worked at a New York litigation firm and for the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. We talk about that that circuit court all the time. She's the author of the new book, Whose Right Is It? The Second Amendment and the Fight Over Guns. Please welcome Hannah Bayramovich. Hannah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about your new book. I believe it was out uh, September 22nd, correct? So it's available? Yep, it's available. This is wonderful. So I want to ask you today, first of all, how you got interested in the first place in writing a book uh, about the Second Amendment. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I actually got interested via a different podcast, uh, More Perfect. Um, You know, they had a series on the different amendments and their episode on the Second Amendment was super fascinating and extremely surprising. I mean, I there was just so much about the amendment and about gun law and policy that I 
did not know. And I, you know, had gone to law school, felt like I kept up with the issues. Um, and I basically, I decided that I wanted to create something for um, young people about this because it's an issue that affects the book is for 10 to 14 year olds and it's an issue that affects them uh, in their day-to-day lives but there isn't I mean it it was surprising to me it's going to be surprising to them Mm. yeah absolutely I mean I you know we didn't I didn't have I'm a Gen Xer I didn't have this issue uh, growing up impacting you know uh, me and my classmates our cohorts we were worried about nuclear uh, attacks (laughs) in the Cold War (laughs) Um, And I mean, this is just so predominant in our schools. um, And I'm really glad that you geared this toward 10 to 14 year olds. And what are some of the other uh, reasons that you that you wanted to write this specifically for 10 to 14 year olds? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, I mean, as I mentioned, the existing literature was for an adult audience. Uh, a lot of it was either focused on history or policy, and I wanted to create sort of an all-in-one book for young people that is digestible, um, sort of easy to understand, or as easy as <laughs> this complicated stuff can be, and that also just presented them the facts. I didn't want to be prescriptive. I wanted to give them the history of the amendment of gun laws, and I wanted them to come to their own conclusions. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful, because I think a lot of people take for granted the fact that our 10 to 14 year olds are extremely critical thinkers. Totally, totally. And it's such a crucial time too to, to, for them to develop those skills. And I think especially when it's an issue that affects them, um, you know, in their daily life, it's a great topic for that, too. And, and, and what do you hope uh, these young readers take away from the book? Yeah. Uh, so I think, as I mentioned, coming to their own conclusions about a topic they hear about in the news or from their parents first. Um, second, I also wanted them to be, you know, surprised by the things that surprised me. Um, in particular, I was surprised to learn how new our current conception of the Second Amendment is. Um, you know, for basically my whole adult life, I viewed it as this individual right, um, hallowed in the Constitution sort of, you know, unchallengeable. But really, for most of American history, it was viewed as a militia, right? You know, the first clause of the amendment uh, talks about a well-regulated militia. Um, And for, you know, until the NRA got involved in the 70s and until 2008 case of D.C. v. Heller, that was the way the amendment was viewed. And so that was really surprising to me and something that I wanted to make sure they knew. Because many of the readers, you know, uh, from this book were born after 2008. Mm, That's a very good point. And, you know, to bring up the NRA, like you just did, we have to kind of understand their playbook. I mean, I feel like they're in their death throes right now. I mean, they're bankrupt. They're under all this investigation from, you know, the New York Attorney General. They're not doing well, which I like, uh, because they had sort of much like the discussions about the Second Amendment, uh, over the decades, they've moved away from Second Amendment protection and and just more towards gun lobbying and and it, it just in the wrong direction. Yeah, the history of the NRA is actually one of the coolest things I think uh, I learned in my research, and one of the most interesting things that for for many many years they were a, you know a marksmanship organization, a sporting organization. It wasn't until 1977 uh, when they became or started to become the lobbying powerhouse we know today. Uh, at that point, um, a small group of, well, I guess not that small, but a group of their members, the gun hardliners, at their national convention overtook um, the the old guard, the people who were had been running the organization and transformed the organization's mission away from, you know, outdoor activities, sporting, um, and into into lobbying. And I, one of the, you know, I was very surprised to learn that. Before then, they were actually thinking of packing, the NRA was thinking of packing up and leaving D.C., moving out to Colorado, you know, refocusing on outdoors activities. And talk to me a little bit about something that you're relaying in your book here, and it's called the hassle factor. And and I'd like you to address what that is and how we can turn that hassle factor into what John Lewis described as good trouble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So the hassle factor um, is a term uh, that's used to describe 
the, why elected officials often support the NRA. It's, it's used to describe the confrontations with NRA supporters. So um, when you're writing your senator or you're picketing in front of their office or you're calling them, that's what's called the hassle factor. And the hassle factor can have, you know, a greater impact than even money or litigation. It's what, um, what you know, former senators and or an aide to a former senator has described as like the the primary uh, the primary feature that affects how politicians operate. Um, you know, that they care about the mail, the calls, the people picketing, um, because politicians are risk averse. And so I think what's cool about that is that it's very democratic um, and that, you know, it means that for people who oppose um, the NRA or or gun rights, they can do the same things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's how we get it done, right? March for our lives. That's how we get gun reform done uh, is to be, what did they say? Be a nuisance when it counts, right? Right. Absolutely. Now, do you see kids reading this book on their own or with their parents or in a classroom setting? How do you see them getting getting access to this kind of really important information? I think it depends on age. Um, I think for younger kids, they might you read it with a teacher or under you know parental or with their parents. But for older kids, I think um, they might read it on their own, ask parents or teachers if they have questions, and especially questions related to current events. I think it's a evergreen sort of topic. It'll always be in the news and uh, will always sort of be relevant. Mm-hmm. And, and what would you say to parents who might say the book is inappropriate for their child? Well, the sad reality is that, you know, kids across the country are already exposed to talk about guns, if not, you know, gun violence. Um, it's wearing clear backpacks. It's passing through metal detectors. It's school shooter drills. Um, you know, in a recent school shooter drill at an Indiana elementary school, um, they used pellet guns and the teachers ended up with bloody welts. Um, and so th- the point is just that it's there. Um, and I think that this book actually might make things less scary um, and by giving kids the tools to help both understand the problem and how they might help solve it. Yeah. It, when we, when we, I think when we learn what we can do, like what actions we can take and then actually, you know, and take those actions, it kind of really helps sort of give you a feeling of, of taking control back. And I think that that's important, especially at that age group. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, tell me something shocking that you learned from your research writing this book. Yeah, I I mean, this was the shocking thing, actually, that was in the more perfect podcast that got me interested in writing the book in the first place was the interesting um, uh, interaction between um, the NRA and the Black Panthers. Uh, so in the 60s, the Black Panthers in California were policing the police uh, in order to protest police brutality. They would watch um, arrests as they happened from a distance with loaded weapons. And in response to that, California passed uh, a law known as the Mulford Act, which made carrying loaded weapons in public places a misdemeanor. Um, and actually the foremost supporter of this law was Ronald Reagan, who was governor of California at the time, which ironically, you know, he changed his position later. Um, (laughs) a little bit, right? Yeah. yeah. But the, the Panthers at this time had this individual rights interpretation of the second amendment. They said the second amendment gives me the right to carry my gun and to police the police. Um, and that, like at that time, it was not sort of a common uh, legal theory. Um, I think the first law journal article about it was in like 1965 or something. Um, shortly thereafter, the federal government passed the Gun Control Act of 1968, um, a federal gun control law. And after that law was passed was when the NRA started to shift. That's the NRA revolution that I talked about earlier. Um, the Gun Control Act of 1968 helped um, galvanize the hardliners within the NRA um, to fight against the old guard and to create a more um, uh, pro-gun rights 
organization and less sort of an outdoorsy, like a, a lobbying organization. Um, but they too then took up uh, the idea that the Second Amendment was an individual right, which they then pushed for 40 years, culminating ultimately in 2008 with D.C. v. Heller. But that sort of strange historical, um, uh, like, it, it was unlikely to me. It's, it was very unlikely to me to watch how, uh, you know, a, a theory adopted by the Black Panthers then became the theory adopted by white conservatives in the NRA. And um, I have I have a one more question for you here because you worked at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, given the current nomination of Amy Coney Barrett and a looming conservative court, how do you think that might impact our gun laws going forward? I think that both with DCV Heller and this looming you know, future uh, court. I think all of that disincentivizes states passing gun laws in the first place because the threat of litigation is very real. Um, And even if you think you've passed a law that would, you know, withstand constitutional scrutiny, litigation is still very expensive. And so... um, I think all of that stops gun laws from even being passed in the first place. Um, you know, there are things like smart gun reforms that seem sort of obvious. Smart gun reforms being uh, technologies that prevent a gun being fired unless it's being fired by its rightful owner um, that just can't get passed. And I think it's because sort of these new, it's expensive. You, you don't want to defend it in case, in case you do get sued. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're responsible for your own court fees if you're not the prevailing party, and and I think it might also stymie um, national laws pa- passed by Congress as well. Um, although, you know, I mean, if we do in this election flip the Senate, hold the House, and get the White House pass some common lens- common sense national gun laws, like we, you know, I mean, we've had the assault weapons ban and that expired. We've had national gun laws like you like you um, outlined earlier. But, you know, they would just be litigated against uh, over and over again. And I think more fervently if we have that conservative court. Yeah, absolutely. I think another interesting effect of D.C. v. Heller, the 2008 Supreme Court case that enshrined the right in the Constitution, was that it deepened polarization um, between the parties because the right to bear arms became, you know, a constitutional right. Um, and so the left became more left, the right became more right. And that I think contributes to the partisan gridlock that prevents this stuff from being passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The partisan gridlock, the, the lobby money, the hassle factor. I mean, there's just so much that goes into it, but I'm so glad that you've written this book so you can explain, uh, to people at a, at a young age, like, Hey, write letters, march, be, be involved in your democracy. And, and that, that is how, that is how we get things done and, and even starting at the local level. So I really want to thank you for writing this book. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Can you tell us ever, uh, tell everyone where you can find it? I'm, I'm assuming everywhere books are sold. Yes. Or you can just go to my website, um, hannabramovich.com, H-A-N-A-B-A-J-R-A-M-O-V-I-C.com. All right, Hannah, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you. All right, everybody stick around right after this break. We have the good news block. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, this Helping of Daily Beans is brought to you by PayPal. These are difficult times. There's a lot of new challenges that we're facing. And things may have changed around us, but our inner drive to be there for people that we care about runs deeper than ever. Uh, It's crucial to stay involved and support our loved ones and friends and families and organizations that support us. So when we come together as a community, we empower ourselves to make meaningful change. We're finding new ways to connect and continue supporting one another. We started socially distancing when we spend time with friends and explore new local cuisine. Uh, We're doing more to support and advocate for underrepresented communities more than ever before. So what we need more now than ever is a way to support each other from afar. And for me, the solution is PayPal. With the PayPal app, sending and receiving money is fast and easy. You can stay connected with the people you love and quickly and securely send money to friends and family just about anywhere in the world. Start a money pool to split a bill, go in on a gift together, or fundraise for a good cause. With PayPal, you can support the places and causes you care about most. I recently donated to Act Blue, and I was able to send financial support to friends of mine in real need that are, you know, right now during this time. 
And with PayPal, I can instantly donate local uh, to local nonprofits uh, that I support. And you can do that from across the country. With PayPal, you can even make touch-free QR code payments at your favorite local restaurant or at the farmer's market. And PayPal is making it easy to pay safely, quickly, and easily. So download the PayPal app today. Terms and conditions apply. All right, everybody. Welcome back. It's time for the good news. Thank you all so much for submitting your good news stories. If you have any confessions or corrections about anything I've said in any of the shows to send, you can do that along with your good news stories, personal or political, at dailybeanspod.com. Just send them there, and uh, we will get to them. And also remember to include if you want to remain anonymous, or you can uh, put your name there, and you can also include your pronouns. And first up, from Anonymous... The debate happened just a few blocks away from my apartment in Little Italy in Cleveland. I'm a law student and doing almost all of my classes online, so I was able to take a break every so often to stand like Wonder Woman, body angled in the direction of the debate, brandishing one arm, and with my middle finger extended up to the heavens and bellowing, fuck you, Trump. <laughs> it sure did make me feel a tiny bit better, and I can only hope he got a cold, clammy feeling up and down his spine every time I did that. Please enjoy pictures of my kitties who are keeping me sane and delightfully distracted. There's Jemima Fish, tortoise shell. She's 18. Oh, 18-year-old. Oh. And Baxter Buttersnaps, white buff, five months old. Five months old. <gasps> I had a cat that looked like him. Oh, little old Baxter Buttersnaps. Oh, I had a cat named Kevin Fuck who looked just like that. And then the tortie. Oh, she's so cute. We will include these photos, as with all photos. In the newsletter. So if you're going to submit good news and you don't want your photo included in the newsletter, make sure to let us know because otherwise we'll stick it in there. Next up, from Anonymous, pronouns she and her. I drove my mother to a day surgery recently. She's healthy and doing great. And on the way home, I decided to initiate her into the Leguminati. I turned on the Daily Beans and drove home. When we got home, my mom says, God bless AG. She has to talk so fast because there's just too much bullshit in the world for her to cover. <laughs> While this is true, I forgot I had the podcast turned at 1.5 speed <laughs> the whole way home. Anyway, it made me chuckle. Thank you for all you do, and thank you to every person on the Beans team who's working their ass off to elect Biden. And as a nice bumper sticker I saw today that said, Flush the Turd, November 3rd. <laughs> God bless you. She talks so fast. There's just so much bullshit. It's on 1.4 times speed. Have you ever listened to me at half speed? I sound... Like the annoying drunk politics person at the end of the bar. Listen, try listening to me at half speed and you'll see what I mean. Next up is, oh, we do have a confession. Ooh, from Anonymous. Quote, I did not vote in 2016, but I did just mail in my ballot for this election and I will never forgive myself for not voting and I will never make the same mistake again. I'm sorry. Hey, don't worry about it. Um, a lot of us felt disenfranchised and many of us were 100% sure in our soul of souls, that there was no way Trump could win. So don't be down on yourself. Thank you for voting this time. Next up, from Ken, pronouns he and him, my Midwestern farmer parents in their late 70s are as, if not more, disgusted by the nacho cheese dipshit than I am. Yay! Midwestern farmer parents in their late 70s. Hooray! Dude, that sounds rad. I grew up on kind of a farm. Rural Ohio. Rural juror, if I, you know, if I ever get jury duty. I will be a rural juror. But uh, yeah, in outside of Akron, outside of, in a, there's a town called Talmadge. And outside of Talmadge, there was Willow Springs Estates. And that's where I grew up. So that is awesome. Because not too many people out there are uh, riding for Biden, if you know what I'm saying. Next up from Anonymous. This is also a confession. I fucking hate cherry tomatoes. <laughs> okay. In an effort to eat better and lose some of my quarantine stress eating weight I have put on this year, I've been eating the pre-made salads in the cafeteria of the hospital I work in. But every salad, every time, they include three cherry tomatoes. Exactly three. Three of those exploding grenades of slimy nastiness. I don't mind the taste. It's the exploding squish that happens when you bite into them. Yuck. 
So, in an effort to not waste my food and return a little something to Mother Nature and the nitrogen cycle, I have been secretly chucking my tomatoes into the bushes and landscaping around the hospital. I secretly hope that come springtime, the landscapers will be terribly confused as to why there are a whole bunch of random-ass cherry tomato plants sprinkled around the hospital grounds. (laughs) Thank you for everything you do. I've been listening since the Muller She Wrote days. Keep up the good work in helping us fight the orange menace. Of course, I will never stop doing this. Uh, unless, I mean, unless someone pays me, uh, like, uh, like it would have to be, it would have to be in the high eight figures. I'm just saying. Next up from anonymous pronouns, she and her, forgive me, Luminati for I have sinned. Ooh, another confession. My email folder is overflowing with campaign contribution requests. Out of some sort of loyalty or thought that having my name on their list will help their organization, I let my inbox catch all the flotsam and jetsam to the point that I can no longer find the shit I actually want to read, and that includes the links to Act Blue so I can donate. Furthermore, they are beginning to sound like desperate Tinder matches that open up with something like, hey, gorgeous, and then after a couple of days ignoring their dams, they write, are you ignoring me? Of course I'm ignoring you. Next time, put some thought into your opening line. I didn't carefully add talking points to my profile just to have you prove me prove to me that you didn't read it (laughs) are you ignoring me uh yeah i always get that too i'm sorry or this one's personal or something like that but i digress quitting this election has proven to be much more guilt inflicting than quitting tinder but i have found a solution i heard somewhere that giving donations directly to candidates helps them book tv time since networks prioritize campaigns over PACs. so i've been letting the direct campaign requests come through and donating whenever i can This means that I can unsubscribe to super PACs and unleash my snarky rage at them for making my inbox full. They're a PAC. Why are they fishing for small donors? Doesn't that defeat the purpose? One of my unsubscribe essays was 400 words telling them how they could win my state. (laughs) Okay, I'm feeling guilty again. But I just don't like their tactics. And in my experience, anyone who comes on that strong is usually a catfish. Well, that's my confession. I want you to know that I listen every day. Thanks for building this community. It has been a lifeline. Oh, thank you for being part of it. It's been a lifeline for me, too. Next up, hello, Leguminati. What's up, chickpeas? How's it going, my work pods? I'm very thankful someone was able to sponsor me. I've been listening since the kitchen days, but I've been so poor. Even before COVID, I couldn't swing the cost. I know that this is long, but I promise it'll be worth it. My eldest is in second grade. We'll be turning eight October 3rd. Happy birthday, eldest. And it has been hard for him during this pandemic. He has ADHD and sensory processing disorder. He has not been able to spend time with friends, classmates, or his cousins. The only people he can interact with are me, my husband, two-year-old brother, and his grandparents who watch him during the school day and help him with his remote learning. He goes to a public charter school that is a bit different from most. It's the closest thing I have seen to a year-round school. They have two months on, then two weeks break. Then another two months on, and so on. Since mid-March, the school has been doing remote classes. He's on break right now, and we got contacted from his school asking us if after this current break he was going to stay remote or go to in-person classes. If he was to go to in-person classes, my parents would not be able to watch the two-year-old, so we had to have a rough conversation with the almost eight-year-old about the fact that some of his classmates are going to start doing in-person classes, but he needs to stay remote because some of our family members have underlying conditions. We are lucky that we have the option to keep him remote. I know some people are not even getting to have that option. We wanted to do something for his birthday, but we cannot do an in-person party, so we're doing a Zoom birthday. We have attended, quote-unquote, a couple of Zoom birthday parties since the beginning of COVID, and they've been hard on the kids for many reasons. My son wanted to have people, uh, to, wanted people to have party favors, like birthday parties before COVID, so he picked out party favors for his party. Picked out Star Wars beach balls, mini stress relief squishy animal toys, and googly eyes. Uh, I also got him some mini bento box condiment containers to hold the googly eyes. Perfect. I ordered all the party favors, got physical addresses of the people he wanted to invite so I could send them out and in, in enough time so that his guests would have them before the Zoom party. I know that we did not have to send anything by mail to his classmates, but it felt good to support the Postal Service and to know our little guy cares so much about his friends, and I wanted to share the joy. That is so awesome. And thank you for sending that. That's tough, too. Ugh. Little guy. I remember second grade. I remember being eight, learning cursive. I wonder if they still teach that. Anyway, we have uh, one last little bit of good news here. And uh, this is from Anonymous. Pronouns he and him. Hi, Beans Queens. My best friend and I have argued for years. He has never voted, nor has he ever registered to vote. 
Every time politics comes up, he has railed against everything going on and then went on to say how both sides were the same. Last night, he watched the first presidential debate between Trump and Biden. By the end of the first 20 minutes, as Trump screamed at Chris Wallace and talked over Biden while throwing nothing but insults, my best friend texted me to say he was going to register to vote before going to work today. Just watching 20 minutes of Trump being Trump got Biden another vote from someone who's never participated in our electoral system before. I am so proud of my friend for stepping up and voting and trying to save our republic. Uh, On another note, um, when Trump told the Proud Boys to stand by, my best friend texted me going, wait, aren't they like Nazis? What the fuck is the president doing? I hope everyone feels that sentiment, too. We do. Anonymous, we do. And uh, I'm so glad you sent this in because we've sort of all been reeling from this debate. But the good news stories coming out of it, I think, are what will get us to the next one. Through it? I don't know. (laughs) But to it for certain. Thank you all for sending in your stories. Again, you want to send in your stories or confessions or corrections, just head to dailybeanspod.com and click contact. All the information is there. We will be back tomorrow. And tomorrow I'll be talking with the the, the congressman who single-handedly beat Dana Rohrabacher uh, in California, in Orange County. I'm going to be talking to Harley Rauda for the Flip It Blue segment. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be a great show. And we'll have Amy Carrero on, uh, which will also be awesome because she's incredible. Uh, you know, she's Shira. What the fuck? So anyway, until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of your mental health, and take care of the planet. I've been A.G., and them's The Beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by A.G. and Jordan Coburn, and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by A.G., Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.